Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. You are about to listen to a recording that I did with a real estate developer in Texas, uh, Duncanville, Texas, a guy named Monty Anderson. Now, I've had Monty on the podcast before. He was on last year when I was at CNU with John Anderson. Monty is such a, a good man, such a nice guy, and I've grown to really adore him in, in many ways. He is one of these guys who just did like the nitty gritty in the trenches, unheralded kind of work to build some great places with some fantastic people. And along the way, he helped a a ton of people out. And I I just find him to be a very inspiring person. I I wanted to have him on this week because I I wanted him to talk about some of the ways that things are financed. And I, I want you to get a sense as you listen to Monty of all the things he had to go through to make this stuff work. We're talking a lot this week about housing policy and particularly about federal rules and regulations regarding, you know, what can be funded and what can't be funded. And you'll hear Monty talk about the need to, you know, go to friends and family and try to get money to find local investors, people needing to put 35% down payments, all this stuff that is heroic. You know, when we look at Monty, we can see like, this is an heroic person, but as he says towards the end is, is really difficult to scale, right? It's really difficult to scale. He he's involved in a project right now to try to create a thousand small developers around this country. And again, I think it's an heroic effort and it deserves our admiration and applause, but wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be wonderful if it wasn't so difficult? If you didn't have to be a hero, if you didn't have to fight, the man in order to uh, to be able to do just simple things. With that, I give you Monty Anderson. I'm so happy to be able to share this one with you. Enjoy, listen to his story and understand that, you know, we need a, a country full of Monty Andersons and, and the way we're going to get them is by removing all of these obstacles that unnecessarily impede them from coming forth. So Monty Anderson, everybody. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Today, I've got Monty Anderson with Options Real Estate out of uh, Texas with me on the phone. Monty's been on the podcast before, but I want to have him back this week to talk about housing, incremental development, and finance. Monty, welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Thanks, Chuck. Glad to be back. Glad to talk to you as always. Thanks for taking the time. Give us a little bit of background on how you got started in, in real estate development. So I got started um, many years ago. My dad was in the construction business uh, working in southern Dallas County, which is on the side of the city where the have-nots live. So I got into the business kind of through sales. I wanted to get into brokerage and leasing and things like that and get into the real estate business. And I got in, I didn't like the construction as much. So I became a broker and a realtor. And over the years, as I tried to get businesses to come here and I tried to rebuild my neighborhoods and try to get things going, uh, nobody would come. So out of pure desperation, pure desperation and trying to make my community a little bit better and hopefully and hope that 
my kids and my friends wouldn't move away, we started doing development. And out of that desperation, that attitude of desperation, we learned how to do things incrementally. We learned how to do things with no money. And we, we discovered over time New Urbanism, you know, the Congress for the New Urbanism and Strong Towns and, and other organizations that that look for sustainable ways of doing things. And that's how we became the small incremental, you know, uh, new urbanist developer that we are today through really pure desperation. Now, when you describe these neighborhoods as places where there's a lot of have-nots, what are you talking about exactly? You're, you're talking about the, the old neighborhoods that have been kind of walked away from. What do these kind of places look like? Well, in Dallas, you have the North Dallas and basically South Dallas. And North Dallas is mostly affluent, newer neighborhoods, uh, some older over the time. And then South Dallas was the mostly lower, middle to lower income neighborhoods, minority neighborhoods that were that came out of white flight in the 70s and 80s. And so it became a very mixed neighborhood, some old, some poorly built new ones, lots of poorly built you know, apartment complexes with, with tax credits and, you know, abatements and lots of bad strip shopping centers and fast food, you know, Taco John's all over the, <laughs> right. all over the place with just new names, you know, different names on them and lots of check cashing, you know, dollar stores, things like that. Most developers, when they look at a neighborhood like that, are not seeing dollar signs. You know, they're, they're seeing desperation. What What is it about those neighborhoods that, you know, appeal to you or, or allow you to see the, the possibility that you could make a living there? First of all, it was my, my home, you know, where I was born, where I grew up, my village, you know. And secondly, what I learned to see over time is I understood what what good neighborhoods look like. I began to see the little bitty old leftover retail districts in the middle of a a good gridded neighborhood close to the city. So in other words, the neighborhoods had, you know, they weren't cul-de-sacs, you know. They were good size, good scale streets with wide sidewalks off the curb with porches raised and then small sub-neighborhood districts that were all abandoned. And when I began to understand good form, what the good DNA, what a good makeup you know, of a neighborhood was, then I saw the beauty in these places and the opportunity for small entrepreneurs to own individual buildings, to actually own a house and walk to work, and how that we could solve our economic problems of the South Dallas ourselves. And so that made me excited to see that, that we could actually do this ourselves without having to depend on anybody from somewhere else to fix it for us. Right. So you're working as a developer, trying to rebuild and reconnect incrementally these kind of poorer neighborhoods. Certainly there's got to be a lot of federal aid for you and a lot of state assistance and a lot of people coming and, and giving you large sums of money to, to make this work. Is are, are those kind of programs out there? <laughs> they, they probably are, but we didn't get any of that. Talk a little bit about what you did. We do have a, a partnership with one of the cities down here, one of the first ring suburbs where they put money in. But otherwise, 
there's very little money that it came from our private sector uh, development projects it, of anything from any city, except for for the one that I was telling you about. Uh, we've had to do this stuff without anything. Now we do have a nonprofit organization that owns the infamous Texas Theater, where Oswald was captured after he shot Kennedy. That we got community block grant development funds from the federal government through Dallas to restore that theater. But uh, that's a nonprofit organization. We did get some for doing that. But most generally, when we build a small office building or small retail with two apartments above, there's no incentive or grants with that, most generally. Let me ask you about that, because I see developers working out on the edge of Dallas and in, and obviously in other cities around the country, too, where they're doing the kinds of buildings that the federal government through the FHA and through Fannie and Freddie have created a secondary market that the federal government will guarantee certain types of loans and, and, and loan packages. And that's created this whole kind of financing stream that puts a lot of money into those types of developments. That's not the gravy train that flows to your neighborhoods, though, is it? There is some of that where the big developers have come down and put tax credit apartment deals, you know, into our neighborhood and made a lot of money off of them. And then all they've done is create a future slum. In many cases, the slum would come in as little as five to seven years. It wouldn't even come because they were still built the same way, still built sprawling and suburban and nobody really looked back and measured that five years down the road. All the city saw was economic development, a new apartment complex for poor people. They didn't worry that the apartment was disconnected five miles from any retail, you know, or store or, or bus stop or train stop. They didn't worry about any of that. They just built this falling. And so developers for many years, especially in the lean years through 08 and 10 and 11 through those years, I mean, that's the only kind of things that were built. And if you could get the zoning, then you had a chance of getting, you know, tax credits or whatever you've you've got. So several people went to jail in Dallas through that because they they were basically doing, you know, getting the zoning, city councilmen and planning and zoning commissioners both. And so those kind of things got built. And that gravy train, if you come down and build a Walmart shopping center today, you'll probably get some subsidies from Dallas. You know, what happens in 12 years when they're gone? The average, you know, Walmart is gone. The kind of development we're talking about is local people solving their own problems with a little help by moving in local neighborhood retail and office and industrial places and actually owning those places, actually owning the building, not renting from the landlords. We somehow, somewhere along the way, we got in this mindset of it had to be a big developer and, it, and we could only rent from them. We kind of lost what built this country as small entrepreneurs owning their buildings with a couple of living places above it. We kind of got away from that. You described to me a few different examples where you went in and took buildings and encouraged people to move into small spaces, even when they wanted larger spaces and, and work into them and how you were able to kind of bootstrap the financing on those. Could you give us just maybe one of those examples uh, that you've experienced? Yes. It's like, um, for instance, an insurance, a farmer's insurance guy 
who was renting in the elbow of a shopping center, right? Because that's the cheapest space in the shopping center, you know, a suburban shopping center that's not built up against the road where the elbow is. Nobody wants to be in that part of the shopping center. So this guy was in the elbow of the shopping center, but he wanted to be in a better place. He wanted to have build some wealth for his family, young insurance guy. And so what we helped him do is we helped him find a site in one of our developments, which, of course, helps us, where he would fit and could buy a small enough piece of land. You know, he didn't have to go buy an acre. He only needed, a, you know, a 1,700-square-foot building and where he could buy a small enough piece of land and that he could, we could build this building on it for him and that he could get financing from either the SBA or Farmers Insurance, in this case, had a finance program that worked for him. In fact, in this building, the 1,700-square-foot building, he kept half of it for himself and created two other small 500 and 300-square-foot spaces for two other tenants. And so we helped him put that together, um, helped him with his financing, which Farmers Insurance, in this case, allowed him 10% down and a really low interest rate to help their people own their own buildings. And so today, he is a landlord, an investor, an owner, an entrepreneur, and building wealth for his family. And before, he was just a renter from some big corporation, some faceless corporation. So that model of financing, that that was a, a simple one. But there's many examples of how you can get financing on these little buildings with local banks, with partnerships with bigger developers like myself, where we would help somebody. We may loan somebody part of their down payment. We may co-sign for them, which is what most cities ought to be doing, by the way. They ought to be helping helping these small entrepreneurs own these buildings. Then when gentrification comes along, when the big developers come along, you've got, you know, this kind of slows things down and makes it much more gentle you know, when there's owners in town and there's stakeholders. In fact, some of the big developers that want to do really bad stuff probably won't even come in to the areas these that people like this exist. Right, right, because you have dispersed ownership in people who are vested in that neighborhood. Right, and see, so some of this building, let's say we took the little farmer's insurance building with three tenants and I wanted to build it as a developer, and then I had to manage it and lease it and take care of it. Well, you know what? It wouldn't make me enough money to do that. It's not big enough. But if I can help the entrepreneur on that, then I can sell him the building for a little bit of money, a little spread. I make a little money. I get to sell some land in one of my developments. And then he gets to own and operate and manage that himself. And let's say there's two apartments on that. That's where the affordable housing can go, the workforce housing can go. And it can go spread out all through the neighborhood instead of concentrated in two to 300 units of apartments. The butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, they take care of your affordable and workforce housing and little doses of it everywhere. And you have a much, much more sustainable community where somebody, let's say there's a single mom with a you know eight-year-old boy growing up who's able to mix in the town with the insurance man and with the fluent people instead of being focused and concentrated all in a place with all, you know, lower income, middle to lower income, you know, latchkey kids, you know. 
Talk a little bit about the kind of the creative ways that people go about financing some of these things. They're not getting conventional 30-year mortgages that are sold off and securitized. What are some of the ways that people go about doing this kind of financing and, and how is it different, Monty? Well, some of the ways you can do it if you're a commercial building owner, let's say that you have a thousand square foot building and you occupy 501 square feet yourself and you have an apartment above, you can get an SBA loan with a very low down payment. That's one way. Okay, that's pretty simple. 10% down, you can get an SBA loan. There's another one that John Anderson talks about. John Anderson's the um, Anderson Kim architectural firm. He and I are working on a lot of this incremental development stuff together, as you know. And he talks about the SHA loan for fourplex and below. If you'll be willing to move into a fourplex, there is an FHA program out there that will allow you, with a really low down payment, the ability to own that property. And hardly anybody knows about about these these. Pro- I mean, there's very few that know about this program. So that's another way. The third way, which is the way, the desperation way that I've done things, is to come up with the amount of money you need for a project. And then I would go to family and friends, not really family because my family didn't really have the money, but I, I, people I consider like family and friends, and get them to actually loan us money for the down payment or partner with us for the down payment, depending on how big the project was and how much the bank would give us. If you and I were going to build a $500,000 building and we went to the bank today, and the bank says, well, you know, Chuck, you and Bonnie, I'm not sure about the stuff y'all are talking about. We'll loan you 65%. So you're going to need a pretty big chunk of money, 35%. So what's that? You know, 185000 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're going to want some equity right off the bat. Yeah, big yep. equity. Yep. So in that case, what I would do was I would go around to, to other town leaders, okay, other people in town that are they have a little bit of money. Maybe not billionaires, but have a little bit of money. And I'd say, hey, come invest with me in Build Town. I'll sign the note. You don't have to sign the note. You know, you give me one-fifth of this. Guy next door gives me one-fifth. Somebody else gives me one-fifth and somebody else. And I'll give you 3%, 4% return. That's more than you get in a CD and a bank on the deal. I'll give you that kind of return. And so if you went to Wall Street... Okay, to get that money or to a bank or to a loan broker or to somebody in the financial field, you're going to have to pay you know, 10, 12% for that kind of money, maybe more. But if you're doing this within the town where you have like-minded people that are investing back in their town, and there's a lot of baby boomers out there with a lot of money these days that's just sitting in the bank. It's not being reinvested back in the community. All they need is a sound system to do this. And, and just because they're family or friends doesn't mean you treat them that way. You treat them like sophisticated investors. But they're people that would probably take a chance on you because it's in town and because you've broken it down into five investors instead of one. It's not the end of the world if you lost that money. What kind of person is interested in buying 
a place where you have, say, the, the business down below with the living space up above or the, the business in front with the living space in back. Uh, d- describe the kind of tenant or buyer that you're looking at who ends up in a place like that. So but besides the insurance, man, there's one. I have a, a, a donut maker. You know, I know you've heard me talk about it a couple of times. I have a, a, a donut shop, a simple donut shop. A 1,700 square foot building. They occupy a thousand in the front, and 700 in the square foot back as an apartment. They lived there in the beginning, so they could own their building. And then after they made more money, then they went and bought a house and then rented the apartment out. There's the photographer. I've got a commercial photographer guy, and he's got a a house connected to a big studio building, and so he can rent he can rent the house out. Uh, we've got a Mr. Jim's Pizza right now that is getting ready to – they'll have their retail Mr. Jim's franchise pizza on the bottom and two apartments above. You, so any business, whether it's a, a resale store, we've got a resale store with a couple of apartments down the street. We've got a, a tamale store with on one side a music store on the other and two apartments in the back of another building. So it could literally be anybody that wants to go into – Mostly this works in an urban context, you know, being a little downtown or mostly works in those kind of uh, zero lot, you know, kind of places. But it doesn't have to be. My building where my office is, has got 2,500 square feet of office on the first floor and two 1,250 square feet apartments above. So it could literally be just about anything that you can think of. We're getting ready to do a project where we're doing industrial artists on a bottom floor and actually studio and loft apartments on a second floor right on a dart station on our on our rail our light light rail system in Dallas. So I mean in I mean in the old days, I mean in the early part of the twentieth century, every town was pretty much like this. I mean if you you either built your residence above or you built it on the next block over. You know, where you could walk to work. Right, right. To close things up, I, I want you to talk a little bit about what you and John Anderson are doing with the Incremental Development Alliance and why you think it's so important. And and I just want to say before you do that, that, you know, you two guys are two of my heroes in a way. This, the, the incredible amount of time and passion that you put into sharing what is a very unique set of skills with other people. Talk a little bit about what you're doing and, and why you're doing it. Well, partly it's because you've inspired us. <laughs> well, thank you. Towns. Because when you started, you started measuring these towns. You and Joe Mancosi and the others that that you're connected to. When you started measuring these towns and these little buildings on little lots in town, we started seeing that my little building in the downtown was on tax rolls for seven million dollars per acre. And then the Walmart on the edge of town was $490,000 per acre. We started measuring that. We started seeing the value in that. Then what we realized that the big developers of today, all the big developers out there in the world, as we talked to them, we realized that none of them were going to be willing to scale or even capable of scaling down to what we talk about. Because they're mostly, most of the big developers are financial architects. They're not really town builders. They're building in a way where they're subject to, like a commodity, where they're subject to the economy going up and down, 
And as we're building these little buildings in the downtowns, they, they seem to weather through the, the cycles I've been through. They've been able to weather and stay, you know, keep continuing to go, whereas the big shopping centers went vacant. So what we realized that we were going to have to do is that there was not a developer out there like we needed. And so what we thought is we would go around and try to teach a thousand, yeah, thousand people how to be small developers in their community. So when we go to these boot camps, like we just did Seaside uh, last week, and so the people that came there were home builders, architects, planners, real estate people, community activists, a couple of tech guys, a couple of community development people that had worked for cities, and all of them were interested in being their own small developer in their community. And so we're really strict on, uh, like, and, and not strict, but we really talk a lot about farming. So go to your community, stay in your community, and build your community out one house, one building, one block at a time. And just stay stay close so you can know, so you'll know the market. And so we're teaching people that have part of, say they have 70% of the skills, they're just missing 30 teaching them how to have that other 30%. You know, where do you go to get financing? How do you create a mentorship program? How do we share? Part of the deal is we share this with you and you have to share it with others because we need to create a thousand developers. There's no way we can go do this work ourselves. I can't go to Brainerd or, you know, or to Minneapolis and do this. I have to stay doing it in my community because it takes, it takes a lot of personal attention. It's, it's not, like you can franchise it. It's, it's done on a, on a very local level with local banks, local investors, local entrepreneurs. I know you have to get going. I, I just want to close by saying thank you. And you and I met for the first time, I think like three, three years ago. And Texas theater. Yeah. Oh, we, yeah, we did meet back at the Texas theater, didn't we? Yeah. Um, yeah. You came here for a small, there's a small group. Well, when you were here, I gave a presentation then, but I heard you speak a couple years ago and I was just blown away by not only your combination of success and humility, but, you know, just the fact that everything that you've been able to accomplish in a period of time when it was very underappreciated, I'm happy and I hope you get the recognition that you deserve because you've done some amazing, amazing things. Well, thank you very much. Um, likewise, I feel we feel the same way about you. You know, the Strong Town's message is really is really resonating. I was with the mayor of Duncanville this morning. I was talking. I said, hey, do you follow Strong Town? I've sent it to you many times. Do you measure your city? Are you looking at the consequences, you know, of your actions? Are you really looking at the long-term consequences? So that with that, you know, you and I are in the same we're working on the same stuff, just different pieces. We are. Uh, I appreciate it. Appreciate you too a lot, Chuck. Hey. More than I tell you, probably. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I, I look forward to seeing you again soon. Yeah, thank you. All right. You, you take care, Monty. Bye-bye. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org.
they know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah. <laughs> 